Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, before we hang out with Naveed Jamali, let's talk about our Amazon link for the holidays at BobSeska.com. Whether you're shopping for yourself or if you're buying music by one of our excellent indie bands or if you're doing some last-minute holiday shopping without leaving your house, don't forget to use our Amazon link just beneath the logo at BobSeska.com. Our special link will take you to the front page of Amazon.com where you can go shopping until you're dropping, and by doing so through our link, we receive a teeny tiny commission on some of your purchases. Thanks for shopping through our Amazon link, and now let the cartoons begin. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, December 18, 2019, Impeachment Day. And this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is national security expert Naveed Jamali. You might know Naveed from his writing at Newsweek and his appearances on MSNBC. He's also the co-author of How to Catch a Russian Spy, the true story of an American civilian turned double agent, which is currently in development as a feature film. Link in the description at bobseska.com. Okay, today we're going to dig into the impeachment, the Trump crisis, Naveed's work for the FBI as a double agent, and even the Snowden matter from 2013. Meanwhile, if you like what you hear today, please support our Patreon page at patreon.com slash show. All right, let's talk with FBI double agent Naveed Jamali. Hello. Naveed, it's Bob Seska. How are you? Hey, Bob. I'm well. I'm so glad to finally talk to you. Um, earlier today, Speaker Pelosi called Trump an ongoing threat to our national security. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, man, I'm talking <laughs> to Naveed Jamali today. I got to ask him about this. Even with impeachment likely passing today, are are we underestimating or overestimating Trump as a threat to national security, Naveed? <laughs> what a great question to start this off with. <laughs> I guess it depends who you ask, um, right? I mean, that, it's, I think that... Um, it's it's really a two-part question uh or two-part answer rather i think that we are underestimating trump uh i think we're underestimating trump as a national security threat mm-hmm. um but i also think we're underestimating russia's ability to manipulate him as a national security threat i think you know there's a partisanship angle to this bob yep. and then there's a non-partisanship angle and that's the national security component the national security component really yes it's trump but it's really mostly russia mm-hmm. independent of trump you know, even if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, Russia would still remain a threat to our national security. And the problem right now that's so frustrating for people like me is that we aren't addressing that. We mm-hmm. aren't. We are unable to remove, and the Republicans are unable to independently remove the threat Russia poses to this country without linking it to Trump. And until that that happens, um, you know, we're hopelessly in a in a, in a very dire situation because. Yeah. You can't address the problem without invoking, you know, claims of partisanship. And that's that's a very dangerous position to be in. Yeah, it boils down to like a both sides thing. Well, they say you're corrupt and and we say you're corrupt and everyone's corrupt. And so because everyone's corrupt, then no one's corrupt. Right. That seems to be the uh, the general response. And it's it's a way of also making it seem like this sort of conspiratorial baseless claim. And, you know, I've I've been concerned about this for quite some time, long before Trump came in, that uh, what I see with Russia and China and, and frankly, lesser adversarial countries are, are, um, is that if you're going to seek to manipulate uh, policy, U.S. policy, 
to make it beneficial to you as a, as a foreign nation, the best way you're going to do that is with money. And, you know, look, this is not conspiracy, but the Russians are quite adept, as we're seeing with, with the Chinese. The Chinese are doing it to export uh, technology. They're quite adept at moving money into the United States, and they're quite adept in case the Russians getting that money to individuals. And this is, you know, it's not to say, again, that because Russia is able to pass essentially launder money to individuals or, and then to organizations and back to individuals and then to a candidate, it's not necessarily saying that the candidate is even aware mm-hmm. that Russia is, you know, putting money towards them. Rather, it's just a question of Russia seeks, says that this candidate is a way of creating chaos and they want to kind of prop them up. Yeah. So they're, and this is, you know, the problem is that that, what I just said has been reduced to conspiracy. It's been to put to this idea that, you know, the Russians are somehow partisan players. They care about the Republic. They don't. I mean, Bob, the reality is Russia doesn't care about the Republicans any more than they do the Democrats and vice versa. Right. All they care about is creating chaos because their end goal is not to prop up the Republican party. Their end goal is, is frankly, I mean, nothing short of the collapse of the United States. I mean, they, they want us to retreat and the vacuum that we create in the world stage, they want to step in. So, but again, that's, where we are today, and to say that publicly would, you know, um, draws criticism of partisanship, mm-hmm. and it's it's frustrating because it's not partisanship. Russia, what Russia does is not they don't sit down as much as I dislike Mitch McConnell on a personal level. They don't sit down Mitch McConnell and say, okay, how can we how can we cooperate with you? We're not how can we work together? It's not it's just not what's happening. That's right. That's right. And the Republicans simply don't understand that what's happening to the Democrats now with the active measures and everything damaging the Democrats can very easily be U-turned and refocused against the Republicans at the drop of a hat. And so what they're doing by enabling this is they're allowing themselves to be attacked at some point in the future as well in, in a similar fashion if we allow it to happen and and they're just completely missing that and they're they're locked into this near-term thinking i've been saying for a while now that the republican party used to be a long-term strategic party they used to have a, a really sharp eye on the long view uh whether it was their process of infiltrating local and state governments or uh the media or what have you uh, they've always been focused on that, you know, decades down the road kind of goal. And that's worked out really well for them. Only now they're locked into this cyclical thing where it's it's just get us through the next election and whatever has to happen to get us there, that's what we're going to do. And it's going to bite them in the ass, isn't it? Well, I, I would take one one slight disagreement with that. I don't think that they're being short-sighted. I think they're, they're, they're being short-sighted with national security, but their long game is in fact, things like appointing, you know, lifetime federal judges. I mean, that is something that they see that uh, supporting Trump, supporting, you know, making sure that he's impeached, um, ignoring sort of the Russian national security threat is a way of ensuring their long-term goals of creating a slanted, slanted judiciary. I mean, that's very much, I mean, McConnell has appointed more federal judges, I, I think, uh, you know, than, uh, than anyone at this no. point. Um, that seems to be not seems that is their that's their strategy. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's kind of brilliant. I, I have to give you know have to tip my hat to them. I mean, that's it is sacrificing national security, it's sacrificing um, our moral compass, it's sacrificing our you know uh, <laughs> how we're viewed on the world stage. Yeah. It's, it's sacrificing a lot, but for them, it's all worth it because you know at the end of the day, what they see is a world that's changing. They see you know America's becoming more brown and. It's not something they want. They don't want progressive. They don't want um, leftward leading policies. They see that as a threat to, you know, what they are. And, you know, the, the remedy for them, they've decided, is to have a judiciary that's, you know, um, well, partisan and, and reflected uh, towards their belief system. And that makes it all justifiable to them. I mean, I don't even think that at this point Republicans believe that Trump is not guilty of abuse of office. I just think that they see that the McConnell sort of strategy of, you know, staff, stacking judiciary um, outweighs everything else. I mean, it's really, wow. that's what they're putting all their eggs in, in that one basket. Yeah. And that's just, the ends for them, in that case, justifies the means. It just seems to me like it's a gigantic risk for not a whole lot of reward. I mean, ultimately, what they're going to end up with 170 somewhere around there, so between 100. So let's say, let's say generously upwards of 200 judges. But the risk reward 
<laughs> ratio between the judges. You and I would, yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, like that. If you and I were thinking about this, that would be. I mean, that's a completely logical. You know, mm. that's a logical way to look at this. Of right, course. right, right. But I, I don't. I think for them, it is they see this as their belief system is going away. I mean, you know, evangelical Christian population is on the decline, mm-hmm. and you know, <laughs> what other choice do they have to keep that? you know, that belief structure line. And it's, they want to, they're not going to be elected in, right? So they tried gerrymandering and that just has some, but you know, some level of success. They've tried suppressing votes and that's had some level of success, but you know, the reality is the numbers are not with them. I mean, they Mm. are going to be a minority. And these are people that have grown up in a, in a country where they weren't the minority, where this country, the institutions were built to support them. And that's changing. And I think that that, you know, pisses off a lot of them. It makes a lot of them very scared. And, as a result, they're thinking very tactically and, frankly, a little bit strategically. And I think, yeah, their best bet for lasting change, it's not legislation because that can be overturned. Yep. It's not gerrymandering because that can be changed, right? It's not staffing the House because that, you know, that we've seen that change. Maybe the Senate, but really the lasting, lasting legacy that they can, they can put in place is the judiciary. That's right. And That's I, really, I really believe that. So, you know, look, I agree with you. I think it's... It's everything that goes against the, the ethos of this country. It's, it's short-sighted for the benefit of the country, but they're not thinking of the benefit of the country. They're thinking about the benefit of them, of their group of, yeah. frankly, you know, white evangelical Christians that they represent. And that's – what can you do? I mean, that's – it's not me. It's not a majority – it's not a, a – you know, uh, it's not a big swath of America. Yeah. But nonetheless, that's, you know – that's you, who they represent. I mean, do you think they're in the process of committing political suicide right now? I mean, is there because I see I see a lot of people who are there are a lot of hot takes floating around about how the Republican Party is in the process of self-immolating. This entire no, I, I, Trump I, I, escapade is just uh, destroying them from within, and then suddenly it's going to be vaporized within a matter of years. Do you see that happening? No, no, I don't. Because what yeah. I what I see, and I've, I've written about this, is I see you know Trump represents to me the the prototypical sort of idea of sort of white entitlement. You know, he's this guy who's never had a real job, never had a board of directors, born into wealth, squandered that wealth, and somehow, you know, kept failing and failed all the way up to the old Oval Office. But that is, you know, America used to be a country that was geared towards, it was, you know, white men. And that's the history of this country. So I think there's a lot of people that see Trump as protecting that, inequality and they want that they want that superiority they want that entitlement um i'm not gonna say they're racist because it's not it's not necessarily racism it's the idea that it's tribalism Mm -hmm. so no i don't see the republican Party. i see the republican party focused on that and how many people represent that well it's still a fairly large swath with 63 million voted for trump last round i don't think that the you know i don't think that the republican party is dying i just think that it's limiting itself it's not a party of moderates, that's for sure. It's not a party that's the big, you know, the big old tent here. It's, you know, it's, it's trying to bring everyone in. Um, it is becoming more extreme, and it's appealing to a very specific demographic. And, you know, on the alternate side is, is the Democrats, which is what do we represent? There's the very much a question with the Democratic Party of, uh, of what is what does that look like? I mean, who yeah. is the is it AOC? Is it is it Joe Biden? I mean, that's. You know, I think the Democratic Party is very much trying to suss this out. Yeah. On the other hand, Bob, the Republicans don't have that, right? Like, you know who the rep- Republicans represent. You know who they appeal to. You know who's going to vote for them. There's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no like question, right? No, no doubt at all. And I'm sure every member of Republican leadership was looking at those polls yesterday that came out, showing that by each generation. Support for the Republican Party and Donald Trump specifically is declining, declining, declining. Obviously, the most support that he's got right now is coming from boomers, a little less for Gen X, a little less for millennials. And there's like no support coming from Gen Y right now. And they're seeing that combined with... Uh, a larger immigrant population. They're seeing the uh, quote unquote browning of America and, and freaking out because of that. And so in light of this threat, at least from the way they see it, this existential threat of conservatism and the Republican party in light of all of that, they're doing something too, that does, I think ultimately have 
a disintegrating fa- effect within this, whether it's spoken or unspoken alliance with Russia. And I don't know that that in of itself, I'm, I'm kind of with you on this. I don't know that that in of itself is going to destroy the Republican Party, but combined with some of these other factors, I think they really need to well, uh, take a look at what they're doing because it's only a matter of time before they're having a, you know, a going out of business sale on their front lawn. It just seems to me as know, if that's I, the direction. I, I don't know. I, I mean, look, obviously, I think what they're doing is wrong. I, you know, I, I will fight it, it personally. It's, look, it's, it's, it's not targeted to help people like mm. me. I mean, I'll, I'll be so on a personal level. Of course, I, I, I agree with you. It's not yeah. the way that I would want even if, you know, or, or an opposing party to go. I don't think it's bad to have two party a two party system that being said I, I it's hard to believe i mean i don't know i I've, I've spoken to people i've spoken to people who who like trump and i just don't see you're right like they're older they tend to be older um they're all white yeah and you know the demographics of this country the the projected shift here is as you said the browning of america it's going to go more left but that's not tomorrow that's not the next election we, we know right. that like this is still going to be an election with you know with trump i mean most likely i, I doubt he's gonna be removed i mean uh it, it's it's and i think that scares the older white generation they know it's coming yeah. um but it's not here yet and and as a result i i, I feel like these people are, are are more tightly in the republican party they're more active in it and you know what it's it's it, it surprises me like i met with a a, a senate candidate for montana and I was talking to him and, and um, you know, he was I didn't realize this. Montana has a population of, I think, seven or eight hundred thousand. It's tiny. And that's, yeah. you know, that's less that's less than the population of of Seattle, where I live. And that's just one city in a state. But nonetheless, Montana has two senators. You know, they have the Electoral College. And so it doesn't take much like the way that our political system is. Yes, the numerically, city centers are, are where the growth in this country is happening. It's where mm-hmm. the diversity is. It's where, you know, the future is in a lot of, in really in a lot of ways. But still, you know, from a political way, you nullify that when you have a state like Montana. It's probably ninety nine percent white, has two senators, has still electoral <laughs> votes, yeah, still representation in Congress, and because they have two senators. There's a state. They're similarly represented by California, you know, as California is or New York, and you can see the end result in the impeachment hearings. You know, we have Republican. You know, there's a Republican senator who's. They're not going to. You know exactly which way they're going to vote. They're not going to be impartial jurists in this. And um, you know, again, I think that that's the stronghold that this minority group, this fast becoming minority group has on this country. They they don't want change. They don't want to give up that power. You know, sometimes, Naveed, I, I think that uh, guys like you and I are in the process of uh, of documenting the decline. And I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to go full Debbie down here necessarily, but Steve Bannon <laughs> said something to Donald Trump, or maybe it was uh, Roger Stone, long ago, when right around when they were starting to think about Donald Trump as a possible candidate for president. And he, Steve Bannon is documented as having said something along the lines of, um, whoever the next president is going to be is going to be managing the decline. And that really yeah. kind of terrified me because, you know, I'm just, I'm not even 50 yet. And I feel like for the next 40 years of my <laughs> career, I don't want to be documenting the decline of the American Republic. I don't want that to be my job. Uh, and that's the purely selfish side of it. But at the same time, we're looking at the possibility that all of this uh, disintegration of the truth, this eating away of factual reality by one side of the political debate is actually manifesting that decline. Do you get the same sense or am I just being par- yeah, paranoid? I, I feel like I feel like we are on. No, no, I don't think it's you. I think it's a lot of people mm. feel that. Look, Bob, I feel like we're on the precipice of fundamental change in this country. We really yeah, are. Yeah. And, you know, the best way to look at that is, is the Democratic Party, which which ideological viewpoint is going to be the future of the party is it is it p and it's represented by the candidates is it Pete Buttigieg is it Joe Biden is Elizabeth Warren you know um clearly unfortunately it's not going to be uh Kamala Harris but you can see that there's a diversity of thought and it's really kind of what is the future of the Democratic Party we all feel this we all feel that this country is going through this massive change we can't see what that change is going to be like but in Mm -hmm. 10 20 years we'll look back at this and see that 
this was a moment that this country changed. I mean, it really did. It's getting younger. It's getting browner. You know, it, we just can't grasp that yet. So I do feel that. I don't feel that it's a negative thing. I think it's, the change is positive. But for a lot of people, change scares them. And it scares them to the point that they're going to fight back against it. And, you know, historically, you can't. Like, you can't fight change. You can delay it. But inevitably, it, change happens. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't think these people, I don't think they're going to be successful in stopping change other than delaying it. And, you know, that's not to say that's not going to be miserable and there's not going to be a price to pay for that. But mm. um, change will happen. And, you know, uh, it is both frustrating, but it's also potentially exciting to think about what that change will look like, what the opportunities could be. Yeah. And yeah. hopefully we can balance, you know, moving forward with impeachment with also this positive thing of like what, again, I go back to the Democratic Party. What is the future of the Democratic Party? It's very much in debate now, right? I mean, mm. you know, you, you look at the, again, Biden is more of an appeal. Biden and Buttigieg are more appeals to centrists, right? Whereas Warren is not. Right. Um, and that's a question of, you know, does the Democratic Party for the next election, do they want to reach out to Trump voters? Do they not want to reach? Do they want to focus on historically underrepresented voters like you know, African-American women or, you know, people of color. Mm -hmm. This is the big question. And, and, you know, what is the roadmap for success? Again, go back to Montana. You can, you can spend millions of dollars getting New York city to vote for your candidate, but then you can spend a third of that for getting the entire state of Montana to give you their electoral college votes. At the end of the day, which is, you know, from a game, (laughs) which is more, a better return on your investment. I think the Republicans see a, a, a you know a roadmap to success by focusing on these smaller states mm-hmm. that are less likely to vote blue. But again, that shows you the rift this country has, right? I mean, completely ideologically opposed viewpoints. And at some point, we're going to have to reconcile the fact that you know we really are, in a lot of ways, two countries under one roof. It's yeah. and when you talk to people on the you know who believe the exact opposite of what one feels and whether you're Republican or Democrat, people say this, there's such a huge gulf between the two. Yeah. yeah. How do we ever bring those two together? I I don't know. I get the sense that one side is interested. Now I'll speak for myself on this. I'm interested in seeing the United States become younger, browner, and more female. Uh, On the other side of the debate, we have uh, people who seem to be, at least from the outside, I, I get the sense the other side is more interested in, in an increasingly autocratic United States, at least based on who they're supporting and how they're supporting yeah. them. And so that, to I me, if, if that if the autocratic side wins, that's going to be the the ongoing decline that we're going to be documenting. If it's the other way, if it's a, a younger, uh, more feminine, browner United States and, and the politics they're in, great let's let's have that let's have that change and uh, it's just a matter now of how do we help that along how do we support that endeavor you know you know if you took this and look at this in the lens of any other country you know iraq or iran where you have the sunni sunni and the shia mm. and you have the kurds you know you have all these minority and majority uh tribes essentially that are that are for, formed on ethnic and religious uh divide you see this. You see that there, you know, in Iraq, you had a minority uh, that was under Saddam, ruled the country over the majority. And when Saddam fell, I mean, that's in large part what caused the ethnic, you know, the strife and you know, destabilized the country. Look at, you yeah. know, what we look at Syria with the Kurds. Um, it, it's there's very much. We don't want to admit that we're very much the same way. At the end of the day, politics is tribalism, right? That we're talking about not just uh, autocratic. We're talking about power groups based on tribes Mm -hmm. and there are people that have historically held power um and you know if you've historically held power you don't necessarily want to give it up not mad you've held on to it because you've been able to hold on to it and and, you know and uh doesn't mean you haven't faced challenges uh to take it away from you And and i think that there is that is what we're seeing there's again when you have that's why there's such a pushback by the republicans on this idea of socialism right so whether you're a socialist or not, the core of it comes down to this idea that, you know, we should be a country of equality. But for a lot of people, the idea of equality means that someone who is unequal is going to be made equal by taking something from you yeah. and giving it to them. So you bring yourself down and you bring them up. And 
you know, for a lot of people, that doesn't sit right. Um, and they really resent that, and they're going to fight that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, we're seeing the president of the United States right now as we talk about it, resenting uh-huh. it and fighting it as loudly and in as many all-caps words <laughs> as he possibly can. Yeah, I, I have a question. So, you know, when, and here's the, the other thing, Bob. I mean, you see this all the time. Yeah. When, they, when, when you have uh, sort of these Trump supporters who are like, if Trump is impeached, it'll— It'll bring violence. It'll bring, you know, mm-hmm. uh, open warfare. My question is, and they never say against who. Yeah. Who are they? Who are they? So, so I mean, we all, we all know what they mean, but, like, that is such a, my God, my gosh, that is such a, uh, a, a, like, a representation of where we are as a country. Yeah. You know, who are they saying there's going to be open war against? It's, I mean, who are they going to be fighting? The government? brown people like what what does that mean it just it seems like not only a disrespect for but an ignorance of what it means to live in a democratic republic what it means to live in this country because in this country what we do when we want change is we vote we protest we complain we petition our members of congress and so on these guys seem to think that the way we go about uh, enacting change in this country is at the point of a gun and i can kind of see that in terms of our you know what we've done in terms of foreign policy over the decades and centuries but at the same time it's not what we do internally you know what i mean with the exception of the civil war we don't we don't democracy is not effective when it's at the point of a gun at least in terms of how we function inside the united states and they just don't understand that we should take these people at their word right they feel what they feel is so powerless that so underrepresented and i'm not you know i'm not waxing poetic or or you know feeling bad for them but I believe them. I think that they feel that they have no other remedy, which is, mm-hmm. you know, boy, that is that is a dangerous combination. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, maybe we should start taking these people at their word. Maybe we should start really realizing that that is that is how divided this country is that, you know, and, and maybe that's a, something that the Democrats could, could mm-hmm. consider that someone like that, no matter what you do, is not going to vote for a Democratic candidate. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Right. And, you know, you're not going to appeal to them. You're just not. Okay, we'll get back to our conversation with Naveed here in just one second. But first, you know, with every passing year, we all look older. But now that's all changed thanks to the magic bullet known as Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's giving us a chance to turn back the clock instead of ringing in another wrinkly new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in just a matter of minutes. It's the easiest New Year's resolution I've ever made. All I had to do was apply this powerful serum to my problem areas, and my God, do I have a lot of problems areas and within 10 minutes it was a new me and the best part is there's no surgery or botox involved it's all natural simply put i'm blown away by the results ring in 2020 with confidence knowing plexiderm is going to give you smooth younger looking skin in just a matter of minutes the best part is it goes on clear so nobody even knows i'm using it leave your under eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Bye-bye, bags and wrinkles. Hello to the new me. Go to triplexiderm.com. Use my code SEXYLIBERAL for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code SEXYLIBERAL. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today. Use the code SEXYLIBERAL at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code SEXYLIBERAL. You know, one of the things we're seeing, Naveed, I think uh, in process right now is this maxim of uh, when the last person who remembers the previous conflagration dies, then the next conflagration starts to get underway. You know what I mean? And your your parents uh, famously worked with the FBI on counterintelligence against the old Soviet Union. In fact, uh, you received a letter from Eric Swalwell acknowledging their service to America. Tell me about your parents this is a, an amazing story what they were able to do uh not only for the fbi but for the united states and, and national security yeah you know I, I think there's an interesting thing when you're you know i'm the son of two immigrants and, and when you're an immigrant yourself mm-hmm. you know both my parents came from from legitimate war-torn countries my, my father was grown was born in india and, and as a young young boy india uh you know separated from pax or pakistan separated became a separate country and there was horrible bloodshed and, and yep. my father you know, left India to, to move to Paxton in, in the height of this. My mother spent her early years um, at the end of World War II in occupied France. And, 
you know, my my grandfather had been was a prisoner of war. He was a French soldier who had spent his the, the majority of the war in, in a prisoner of war camp. So they came to the United States really, and, and they came here um, in this brain trust. My dad came as a Fulbright scholar and wow. as an academic, um, and but they came to this country having known war, having real war yeah. and real strife, and you know that sort of colored um, how they approached this. And so the story, Bob, is. That in the in the late '80s, um, my parents ran a small defense contracting company in New York, which in of itself is a pretty rare thing and a testimony. To the <laughs> yeah, like a, like a mom and pop defense contracting company. <laughs> it's yeah, so funny yeah, to me. No, no other country could you do that, right? I mean, yeah. think about that. Just a Pakistani and a French woman, you know, able to. Anyway, so there's there's you know, and what they did was they supplied literature and books and and research materials. So for West Point, they would supply the you know, the the college with mm-hmm. the all the books for for all the students. Um, and it was a government contract. So uh, things like that. So one day uh, a man walked in that he was uh, worked for the United Nations, the Soviet mission to the United Nations, showed my dad a business card um, that said Colonel Tomekin and, and wouldn't give my father a business card. And then give him a list of books and you know on nuclear proliferation and disarmament. So we got us this, these books and my dad's thinking, this is great. You know, we got a, got a walk and I usually have to cold call a hundred people before I get an actual account. <laughs> and, uh, dad said, sure, I'll get them. And, uh, he said, well, you know, uh, how should I get them to you? And the, and the, the colonel was like, oh, no, 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 I'll come back hmm. and left maybe 15 minutes the most hmm. in and out goes back to work 15, 20 minutes later, two more men walk in and again, it's, this is an office in Midtown, New York. It's not like a bookstore where people, you know, they get walk-ins. Um, and they, they say we're FBI, FBI with counterintelligence with special agents. And um, they show him a picture of the man that just walked in. They said, this man was just here. Can you tell us what he wanted? So my dad said, uh, no, he just wanted to buy some books. And uh, essentially they said, well, you know, would you, would you like to see the list? And they were like, yes. So he gave him a copy of the list. And they said, he said, what do you want me to do? And he said, and uh, the agents told him, look, get him his books. And if he comes back, we'll be in touch. Well, amazingly, that started off an almost two-decade relationship mm-hmm. with the FBI and then me, uh, multi-generational, through one of the few longest-running counterintelligence assets the FBI had. And, wow. um, you know, started with the Soviets. And then, famously, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the same people came back. Instead of, instead of the Soviet mission of the United Nations, now the Russian mission of the United Nations. Instead of KGB officers, it's now the GRU. So my parents, you know, being immigrants always felt they had a duty to this country. They had never asked for anything. Um, even the FBI would offer to take them out to dinner, and they'd say, no, no, thank you. They felt that this was their duty to do, but they didn't want to help too much because they were also <laughs> children of the 60s. But they felt a very strong um, you know, motivation to help. And for, you know, for a, over a decade plus, I came in and, and took this over. They, uh, you know, they let the FBI keep tabs on the Soviets and the Russians and the intelligence community. So what they really were doing is they, you know, for no, no benefit to them, no one ever knew about this, nothing. There was no money exchange. There was no, uh, in fact, it was a huge liability for them. Um, but they, by doing so, they allowed the intelligence community to keep track of what Russian intelligence was trying to collect in the United States. You know, they would, Russian intelligence would give them lists on radars and things. And that was information that was useful um, to our intelligence community. It told you where the gaps were, were with Russian intelligence. So they did this for you know, for a very long time. And yeah. it, it, it frustrates me when I see, you know, a lot of what's happening now. And it's, I don't know, there was just, for them, it was just a civic duty. Mm-hmm. It was something, it was like voting, you know, something yeah. you're supposed to do. You're supposed to help your country when they act. It doesn't mean you have to go overboard. You just do it. Yeah, it's this kind of public service that I don't think Donald Trump understands. You know what I mean? No, he no. just doesn't. He no, doesn't get no, that kind even, of sacrifice. Not even close. Yeah, no. <laughs> and, and and that's such an, an interesting comparison. I mean, Trump is you know this is I don't even view Trump as evil. I don't. I view him as just amoral, someone yeah. who just does things in this very binary fashion. He looks at it and says, "Does this benefit me or does it not benefit?" Right. Me? No, benefits no, me no moral me. compass. That's right. You know, I don't think he looks at stuff and says, I mean, I think he has, he has an anger problem, but I don't think he genuinely <laughs> looks and says, how can I be evil? He just looks at this and says, does this help me? I mean, it's, it's awful. It's in, in a lot of ways, it's probably even worse yeah. um, because it makes it, it, it makes it harder to qualify that it's bad for this country. Are your, uh, are your parents still with us? Are, my parents are both still alive. They, you know, they're very happy to get Eric Swalwell's letter and 
Um, you know, they're, uh, as I often joke that, uh, you know, being the son of two immigrants, that the running joke is, you know, when I finally told them what I, cause I, they, I, they didn't know what I was doing for the FBI after I took <laughs> over and I, I did more than they did. They were very much sort of, sort of this passive, mm-hmm. um, uh, assets that the FBI and the Russians used. But when I, you know, the joke is when they found out I was a double agent, my father was like, why couldn't you be a triple agent? Was, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a typical dad <laughs> thing to say, right? One step. <laughs> Never satisfied. Uh, no, but it's, they look at this and, and they're, you know, they grew up with I mean, my mother with fascism, with Nazis, yeah. with occupied France. I mean, uh, they see a parallel with Trump in 1930s Europe. It seems it seems like they would be extremely disheartened considering the amount of work that they did and the dedication to their country and and the the fight against the Soviet Union. And now you see what's happening in Moscow, specifically what's happening uh, with Vladimir Putin, the Kremlin and the uh, GRU and and these attacks. And it just seems like it's got to be crushing to them to observe what's happening now with this. It's almost like a digital, it's the digital rise uh, or the resurrection of, of Russia, isn't it? And, and so they've, they now have to sit by and, and watch as Vladimir Putin continues to uh, uh, stretch his legs and, and seize as much power as he possibly can, right? Yes. I, uh, the fact that I think for, for them and for me and, and for me as well, it, it's this frustration that, again, there is an inability to look at Russia objectively and say, in a nonpartisan way, they are seeking to harm this. They're, you know, look, the best way I can put it, Bob, is for Russia, the Cold War never died. Yeah. Very much ongoing, <laughs> having dealt right. with, with GRU, you know, GRU intelligence officer for three years. They view their time in the United States as being behind enemy lines, and they're not wrong. I mean, we are their main adversary. Meanwhile, you know, we've been focused on al-Qaeda and ISIS. They haven't been focused. Yeah. They've never taken our, their eyes off of us. I mean, to be sent here as an intelligence officer, work um, on against the U.S. As a, as, a, as a military officer for Russia is like that is a sign that you are someone whose career is on the upwards trajectory. It mm. is a big, big deal because we are their main adversary. There is no one else. It's not al-Qaeda. It's not ISIS. It's not – it's no one. It, it's us. And so right. everything they do is in the context of, of that, which is – I don't think Americans understand it. That's truly frightening. We should be very, very concerned about this. Yeah, 1,000 percent. And in fact, uh, you mentioned the GRU, which is uh, Russian military intelligence. Who was uh, Oleg Kulikov, and how are you connected to that guy? So well, Oleg Kulikov was my Russian case officer. So, you know, look, make no mistake, what the Russians sought to do with me is – is uh, recruit me as an actual, not not like Carter Page, um, but an actual intelligence. Like they wanted to recruit me as an intelligence operative for their side. So a spy. Yeah. And Kulikov was my case officer. So he was a Russian, as you said, military intelligence officer. He's part of the GRU, uh, assigned to the, against the UN. So he was, a, you know, here, it's his name, but he was under diplomatic uh, cover. And his job was to assess, recruit, and, and direct me uh, to, you know, to spy. So he was, the, <clears throat> he was the, one of the more senior case officers the Russians have in the United States. He was working for a guy named Lieutenant, Lieutenant General Nikolai Irvov. Irvov was, a, was the head GRU uh, uniformed officer in the United States. So essentially, by going after Kulikov with the FBI um, through me, we were tying up Urovov because Urovov, you know, this was his, uh, Kulikov was acting under Urovov's direction and orders. And by tying up Urovov, we're tying up the GRU. So my little operation, this is how espionage works, actually had a pretty big impact on GRU collection and uh, in the United States. Um, wow. The end result was that at, at, the, at the close of this, the team that I worked for was presented a, a National Intelligence Medal in part for this work by the director of national intelligence. And Outstanding. This was 2009. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, I mean, it, but what I saw at the time, Bob, again, even back then, 2005, 2008, 2009 was, you know, no one cared about Russia. Right. We're right. focused on counterterrorism. Yeah. But Russia very much cared about what they were doing and they're putting the resources and time. And, you know, it, I can sort of see, and this is not a partisan thing, but I can sort of see 
how 26 happened because they're just, we weren't putting the resources on this. We weren't putting the effort mm-hmm. into this. And, um, you know, in large part, I think that this was pretty significant intelligence failure on our end to sort of stop what the Russians were doing. But again, can't have that conversation because it's, a, it's considered a partisan one. Right, that's right. And just, just to be clear, what was happening was Kulikov was trying to recruit you, but you were working with the yep. FBI to get Kulikov. Is that exactly. is that an accurate read? Yeah, that, yeah, I don't want to make... That's exactly... So from day zero, uh, essentially, the, the just so the, the full story is known, I was, I was in my late 20s. I had applied to this intelligence program with the Navy, mm-hmm. did not get in was told if I reapply, which I was going to do, that I had to show some substantive growth and change from my previous application. I came up with this idea that because the Russians had been coming to my parents' office for a decade plus at this time, <laughs> that perhaps I could help the FBI with that, mm-hmm. and they would write in turn write me a letter of recommendation. So before I ever met with any Russians, I actually sat down with two FBI special agents and a Dunkin' Donuts of all places <laughs> in, again, midtown Manhattan. <laughs> and I said, like, hey, I'm going to be working at my parents' office. I'm going to be meeting with this Russian. I'd love to help you. Um, I'm just hoping that if I do that, you know, you would consider writing a letter of recommendation for my application with the Navy. And little did I know that that was the beginning of a, you know, very three, three years of intense undercover work for the FBI, where they were using me to essentially become a made man in the GRU, which is what happened. The Russians made me an intelligence opera. They, you know, they (laughs) offered me a retirement account and to throw parties and it was a big, big deal. No one, Jesus. let alone a civilian, ever gets to that level. The Russians, and we basically duped them into thinking that they were recruiting a legitimate uh, person. Meanwhile, the entire thing was being monitored and directed by the FBI. This is immensely dangerous work, Naveed. I mean, did that ever cross your mind in the process of all of this, that I could end up with, you know, polonium in my chili cheeseburger or something? You know, <laughs> you know I, mean? I, I laugh at it now, but... I and this is I've come to terms now that I did a tremendous amount of repression because it wasn't six months or it was a year. It was three years of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could the Russians could uh, pop up uh, at your home or wherever at any given time to meet with you. And when even the nicest meetings were not the nicest meetings, they were interrogations. And the stress level was was, you know, I mean, what the Russians would do is they would, you know, you'd give them uh, I'd give them a document and they would ask, who was the sponsor for this document? How did you get this piece of information? And you give them an answer. And eight months later, they asked the same question. <laughs> um, and they, you know, they were constantly interrogating you, and not just to get information, but to also see if your answers changed. And yeah. you know, everything was done to see if there was any deception on your part. If there was any deception, you're done. Um, and more, I was more afraid of screwing up the operation than I was of being harmed. And so the stress for me to deliver because look, Bob, the crazy thing about this is that there was no team in this. I mean, I, I had two FBI handlers and we worked hundreds of hours together to prep for these things. But at the end of the day, when I was meeting with the Russians, it was just me. There was no one there to save me. There's no one there to, you know, if something went wrong, if I said something wrong. So the, the stress level to push the Russians in that direction was, was immense. But oddly enough, I think the fear of failure um, outweighed very much the fear of physical harm to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's, you know, but, but it takes a toll. There's, a, there's only so long that I think you can truthfully uh, stay undercover before it starts to take a, you know, a, a, a mental toll. Three years is a pretty long time to be doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and before I forget, I got to thank you for your service. I mean, the, you've, you've risked your life, obviously, from what we've been hearing about the Russian process of taking care of spies. Yeah, uh, they're not they're not so nice. Don't you don't yeah. you know people who cross the Russians don't tend to you know retire to Boca Raton, right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, are you resentful of this uh, Trump attack on the FBI and the integrity of that institution? It seems to me as if immensely so. Immensely, yeah. you know. I, I, I it, yes, it, it, it pisses me off. I mean, it pisses me off because I, I risk my life. I risk my life going forward. I know it impacts my family, my kids. You know, mm-hmm. the Russians will forever watch my my family and and probably watch my kids, which is wow. disturbing to think about. Um, and you know, to sort of have it. And not just Trump, but the Republicans to have them come back and say, "Oh, Russia's not a threat. Like they're not a big. What the hell are you talking about? Like they're today. They're here in the United States. Oleg is gone. Urovov is gone. But right now, his replacements are doing the exact same thing they did with me, but with someone else. The difference is that person that they're working with 
may not be working for the FBI. In fact, probably isn't. And, you know, that pisses me off. It disturbs me. It worries me because clearly the Russians are putting more effort into this. And we are so far behind the eight ball. And not only so far behind the eight ball, but the people who are working this, this mission, you know, they don't want to, it's already a risk adverse culture. Yeah. But now we have the president publicly calling up the FBI, not just the FBI, but individuals. Can you imagine being like a, you know, a, a FBI counterintelligence officer who's been working this, that's like their second or third year. And you're looking at this and you're like, I don't want the president to start tweeting about me. Yeah. Right. You're not going to take any risks. Like, and that makes our country so much less safe. Yeah. So much less safe. And in fact, uh, last night on Rachel Maddow, Lisa Page, uh, I, yeah. was on and, and obviously responding to the, exactly what you're talking about. It was it's Lisa Page, Peter Strzok, uh, Andy McCabe. These are all guys who, uh, have been in the crosshairs of Donald Trump for, for some time now. Um, and in fact, Lisa Page, I, I want to ask you about this. She said, uh, sure. Robert Mueller abandoned the counterintelligence investigation when he took over just to focus on the criminal side of what was going on with Russia and obstruction of justice and all the rest of it. Do you have any idea what happened to this counterintelligence investigation? Is it still underway? What's going on with it? Because it seems to me as if. Yeah, well, I, I think it is. And I think yeah. it's still and I, I disagree with Paige. And, you know, while I um, I think what the president did to Paige's truck is absolutely, you know, reprehensible. There is a there's a counter, which is like if you're going to be working in this sphere, You've got to. You also have to hold yourself uh, oh, to a yeah. higher standard and be yeah. beyond reproach. And mm. not not that I think that that colored their investigation, but clearly, to ha- you know, they did some stuff wrong. And Peter Strzok specifically, you know, to, to carry off uh, pers- anything personal over uh, over a government device is, is not a good idea. But certainly, um, you know, to go the extra step was not was even worse. That being said, yeah, there is a counterintelligence investigation. I do think it's been broken up into several pieces. I think that. The whole point of counterintelligence, Bob, and, and having lived this is you don't have to – and this is the thing that – another thing that pisses me off so much. Counterintelligence isn't one in the court in the courtroom. If you're going to a courtroom to bring charges and build a case against someone, you've already lost. <laughs> right. Counterintelligence is one you – know, look, Carter Page is a perfect example. Carter Page was approached by the Russians. Um, he was willing to you – know, he was receptive to their overtures. Um, through the testimony for the the, the VEB bank case from 2014 or 15, I forget, um, it came out that uh, the Russians looked at him like he was crazy and were just basically saying, get what you can from him mm-hmm. and dump him. The FBI was successful in stopping that recruitment. That was a win. Even if they didn't bring charge events against Carter Page, then the fact that they were able to detect and and stop the recruitment of a U.S. person is a counterintelligence win. Even if it doesn't, yeah. re- re- you know, lead to criminal charges. That's the framework that counterintelligence works in. So when you think of a counterintelligence investigation, people, you know, someone like Lisa Page, who's a lawyer, might look at this and say, well, there's no criminal indictment. That's not right. That's not the framework to look at this. You can stop a Russian intelligence operation by just telling the Russians, we know you're doing this. And that happens all the time. The Russians, what? This operation is blown. We stop it. And that's it. You've won. You don't have to bring indictments. And you know, I think that's the part that's so frustrating to Americans is that what has happened, what has been exposed, um, you know, the fact that we indicted, that Mueller indicted GRU officers, not because he expects those people to ever face a day in court. That's a very clear message to Russia that says we are actually aware of the intricacies of your intelligence apparatus, what you're doing. That's why they listed specificity of who they were, the buildings, the rooms and things like that. That is a message to Russia, and they have to change things up. They're not going to use that same stuff. Um, so that is a win. So we have, as a public, have to redefine what we see as a counterintelligence win. It's not defined, again, by a perp walk, an indictment, and a conviction. It's defined by actually detecting an intelligence op- a hostile intelligence operation and stopping it. That's it. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be indictments. And I think that's the, you know, so I, I would take a little exception to what Paige, what uh, uh, Lisa Page is saying in that, I think that counterintelligence is still going on. I worry very much that there is a lack of appetite for risk and, and, you know, that concerns me, but I don't think that this is, you know, uh, that they're not doing anything. 
It seems to me, and, and this is something that I think is a major priority for a lot of us, but uh, just speaking for myself, I want to know whether or not Donald Trump is legitimately compromised by Russia. And obviously, we've seen all of the warning signs. We, you know, There are a lot of red flags yeah. that we can see plainly with our own two eyes. The problem is, is we haven't really received any official confirmation that this guy is, is legitimately acting as a, as a compromised American who is operating. In furtherance of uh, of Russian goals, and and I don't know that we're ever going to see that. I mean, is there ever any possibility whatsoever that that is going to eventually be made public, or are we we just so, going to rely on the fact that they're going to try to stop it and and do it quietly rather than stirring up a lot of panic? So the answer is yes to both. And okay, I think he is compromised, and I think that we've already seen the evidence that he is. And and let, but let's take back to what it means to be compromised because. What again? We've got to just we've got to put aside this legal rubric, this legal framework that says, is there evidence that he took? I'm just using it as an example that he took a loan or he took a payoff, and he's or whatever you know, whatever there might be out there. That's not the important part. The important part about compromise and to be thusly manipulated by a foreign intelligence service, it's not. If you know. Um, if you are compromised, you have to believe you've been compromised, and yeah. you have to believe that the compromise is such that its exposure would cause you great harm. And as a result, you're going to act in furtherance of what someone else is telling you to avoid being exposed. So whether he was compromised by some legal threshold, it's very clear to me, just as a psychological component, that Donald Trump believes that Russia has something on him. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be something that's, you know, in a court of law. It could be that he's told Vladimir Putin he loves puppies or he's not afraid of stairs. I mean, it could be something like that, <laughs> that that the exposure of that would embarrass him. Mm-hmm. And I say this because, look, we have the evidence. Donald Trump has never spoken ill of Russia yep. or Vladimir Putin. He's criticized everything. Right. I mean, anything under the sun he will criticize Vladimir Putin. Never. And to me, that is someone who. You know, he's scared of Putin for whatever reason. To me, that is something that the Russians are completely using to manipulate him. Why wouldn't they? And to me, that's evidence of compromise. Again, doesn't mean that there's a crime behind it. It just means that for whatever reason, he's scared of Vladimir Putin. Is that a crime? No. But you can't have someone like that as the president of the United States. That's not that's going to make. Again, he's making decisions that are based on his interest his interest of not being scared of Vladimir Putin in fact as far as 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 far as I'm concerned it's worse than any other crime that he's committed it's you could do the whole list I agree with you whether it's emoluments or Ukraine or anything Charlottesville any of his other trespasses against the law and against decency against decorum and all the rest of it the the compromised side of this is the most disturbing element to me and it just seems it's frustrating that we're not getting any sort of closure on that I mean obviously we've seen a lot of I think, I, I think where people like you and I can help the public narrative here yeah. is to educate the public that when it comes to counterintelligence, again, the legal framework is not the way to judge this. You know, again, if if Donald Trump is scared of Vladimir Putin, being scared of Vladimir Putin is not a crime. But that does mean, as, as you're saying, rightfully so, it means that he's going to shape his decisions thusly right he's going to make based on that fear that is something the russians will seek to manipulate i mean i I believe they are i mean i absolutely believe they are whether that's a crime i don't think it is because look the framers never envisioned something like this but that's how intelligence operations work they're not necessarily you know illegal but they're incredibly dangerous right like you can't fight them by bringing them to a jury you've got to fight them by finding i mean like ideally we would find out what what worries Donald Trump? Why is he so deferential to the Russians and yeah. Vladimir Putin? Why is he meeting with them the day they announce articles of impeachment? Why is he always, why is the impeachment nexus always something involving Russia, right? I mean, it's Russian propaganda and disinformation that he's spouting mm-hmm. at, the, at the core of this. It, to me, that would be, it's, it's very likely that the Russians probably told him this, you know, about Ukraine yeah. and, and, to, and Biden. But again, none of that is illegal, but you have to see it as an active operation by the Russians. The best way to counter it is to expose it and, and, you know, whether it's privately or publicly. But the other thing for the public to do is to stop looking at, you know, the courts to sort of be the the arbiter to stop this. That's not Mm -hmm. what counterintelligence does. And 
I mean, I think that equally frustrating for me as someone who lived this is, you know, the fact that we seem to revert back to legal standards, which just don't apply here. It's just, again, being scared of Vladimir Putin, not a crime, but also (laughs) not presidential, right? You can't, (laughs) you can't be the president of the United States and and be worried and or or, and or deferential to Vladimir Putin. I mean, you just. That's not presidential. You know, every time, Navid, I talk to a national security expert, I always got to bring this up. Um, One of the events I covered closely uh, a few years ago was the Snowden matter. And as we all know, uh, Snowden was ushered from the Russian consulate in Hong Kong to Moscow by WikiLeaks lawyers and then was represented once he arrived in Moscow, was represented by a former FSB lawyer, Anatoly Kucherena, and then stayed in Moscow, where he is today as a welcome guest of Vladimir Putin. Was that whole thing the beginning of Putin's incursion into American politics, or was this merely a coincidence that Putin seized and then exploited? How does that? It, it was absolutely not a. It was absolutely not a coincidence, nor was it the beginning. But it was wow. probably one of these public things that, you know, it was one of the few public things that you've seen. Uh, I think what it was is one more waypoint in Russia saying. Hey, look what we can get away with. Yeah. You know, I think the fact that that is, it is, I mean, it's so, Snowden is so upsetting on so many levels, but I think the most thing, the thing that upsets me the most about him is that the Russians looked at this and they said, wait, we can get away with this. (laughs) Right. Yep. What else can we get away with? Mm. Yeah, and in fact, what happened was, I mean, that was 2013. And then what we saw in 2014 was really the beginning of everything that we're witnessing now. Uh, it was the beginning of, yeah, of yeah, it, totally. was, it was Crimea, it was uh, the Donbass region, and it was everything else that we've seen in sort of the modern history of Vladimir Putin and, uh, and, and his operations to expand his power. And everyone tr- tracks to that Sochi Olympics as being kind of the beginning and then with Crimea happening right after that. But I see it kind of the Snowden thing a year earlier as kind of being uh, Vladimir Putin's first step into some sort of digitized aggression against the West. Is that a, a fairly accurate read or am I sort of over? Yeah, I, I, would, I would just say it's not even digitized, though. It yeah. really was what what uh, Putin was looking for was our react- reaction. Mm-hmm. We did nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, I mean, we look, the reaction was. Snowden going into Russia and, and, and releasing all this. Uh, and look, they're, they're, I'm not going to defend, uh, you know, U.S. intelligence certainly has some, some questions to answer to. And, and they're really, as sure. a former intelligence officer, you know, we, should, we, do, we do not spy on Americans. I take that very, very personally when people say that, mm-hmm. especially like Eli Lake today. But what, um, <laughs> what Snowden did and what he was used by the Russians was essentially a way to attack U.S. intelligence. And so the Russians, if I'm Russia, I'm looking at this. I'm like, holy cow, I can get one guy. I can manipulate him with the public. I can manipulate him with the press. And look, I can have congressional hearings. I can get the head of the NSA hauled in front of Congress and have programs shut down. I can have oversight. I can have them made public. Yep. The Russians are looking at this and saying, they don't care about rights to privacy or American citizens' rights. They're just looking at this and like, holy cow, look what we've been able to do to U.S. intelligence. What else <laughs> yeah. can we do? major major coup right there by coup yeah. i mean victory i mean that was a big deal i think for no, vladimir putin right. yeah. and yeah. and you're looking at this and you and they're probably thinking wow could we have the same impact on an election like mm-hmm. what else could we do with this that's right disinformation well what it did is it scra- I mean, it, was a, it, it scrambled yeah. the left right paradigm for that summer of 2013 right. with glenn greenwald and and barack obama was president you had the left attacking the left. <laughs> they were divided. Yep. It was divided along those lines. And what it did is it it created um, uh, more friction. And that, I think, is ultimately the goal of Vladimir Putin is to chaos. inaugurate chaos, chaos in the United they, States. Yeah, they want to they want to. That's right. They want to feed the divisiveness between in this country. So, yeah, I think it was I mean, I would even say perhaps it was a blueprint for 2016. Right. Yep. Not noted himself, but the wow. their their manipulation of coverage and and public outrage and and stoking fears of fears and and stoking chaos in the united states and i mean at at the end of the day isn't that exactly what they did in 2016 they found the issue the wedge issues between americans and 
blew those up to create chaos, and that was Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is a, is a fire starter. That's all he is. There were so many markers, Naveed, during that summer. And again, I was obsessively covering uh, Snowden and Greenwald and what they were doing. And I saw a lot of fudging of the facts happening. And it was very difficult for me as being an old school print journalism guy. I came from broadcast. I came from print journalism. And to see that going on, to see where everyone was gearing their Snowden scoops on, uh, you know, what kind of sensationalistic headline can we pick out of this stuff and and put it out there and and get it out there first and get it spread virally through the Internet only to be, you know, only to be contradicted 12 paragraphs down, which was kind of the trend. And so there was was, a it was also the height of irresponsibility. Right. Like, I understand that, you know, the press receives classified information. They have. You know they have a duty to report on it. Sure, but there's a ethic. There's also an ethical way to do that, Bob. And mm-hmm. as, as you know, as a, as a as a journalist, you understand this. There's an ethical way to report on something um, versus WikiLeaks, for example, which is nothing more than a repository that you know just puts the documents out there. That's that's not responsible reporting, right? No. I mean, when I talked to I talked to reporters that worked on on this, including uh, those at the Times, and look, what they did was they got all the documentation, they put it in a in a, in a you know. A special room, and they and they had journalists with a national security and military background go through it and and essentially paraphrase. But they were very concerned about releasing anything that could cause harm to the United States, cause harm to individuals. And there was very much an ethical test. And you know, again, I, I don't fault journalists for covering this. They're, this is a newsworthy story, and yeah. that's their job. But there's also, I think, you know, look, we saw it with uh, uh, one of the journalists when that Russian former Russian spy was exfiltrated and was in New York and he found the guy or Washington DC found the person's name knocked on his door. Like mm-hmm. that's not ethical reporting. Like that's, and I think that what we've come into is a, a war of scoops and yeah. sometimes the scoop like is for the sake of the scoop, not the sake of the, you know, there's the, the ethics get forgotten. Mm-hmm. And that right. does concern me, especially with this, you know, you're releasing, you know, our adversaries are reading, are reading this stuff. They're looking at it. Um, you got to be really careful about this. And, yeah. and again, you know, we have another question. There's journalists like you and, and you know, I'm at Newsweek and I was at MSNBC before. And then there's mm-hmm. journalists like Wikileaks, people who would say they're journal- Wikileaks is, is journalism. We have to rectify this. I mean, we have to have some uh, distinguishing factor here. We should have, you know, the, the freedom the press has. There are people who are looking to exploit that. Look at uh, Sputnik or Russia Today, right? Oh, God, yeah. Those are perfect examples. Mm. And they were, you know, but they would they would say they're journalists and there's an ethical there's a at some point the United States, you know, we have to come to some some distinction here, something, some test, some way of saying when there's someone who's seeking to exploit our laws um, in that regard to cause cause harm to this country. I mean, it's there's a difference between being held account and and, you know, harm. Yeah, right. Well, you know, uh, Naveed, I'm keeping you way late. Thank you for <laughs> sticking around uh, well beyond what I said we'd uh, the length of time we'd be talking for. But uh, how's the campaign for city council going in uh, Seattle? And before you, before you answer, I have to say, <laughs> oh, I, I, I love I love that you're doing this, by the way, rather than jumping. Well, uh, well, I, I mean, I lost. I should just tell oh, you. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. Well, it's too bad. <laughs> I, had, I had a really good time. It was, it was an eye-opening uh, event, but I, I, got, I ended up going back doing some other stuff, so I, I had to sort of kind of tamped down. I, I very much want to continue with, uh, with politics. It, um, I, I probably will focus on the federal stage going forward. I don't have any immediate plans, but I think, you know, in the interim, I was able to help Eric Swall with his presidential campaign, which mm. I'm incredibly proud of. He's, he's an you know, amazing person, has a long political future, oh, and, yeah. you know, is a, a bright voice, a reasonable voice of the Democratic Party, and I'm proud that I was able to help him. Uh, I was also able to help Pete Buttigieg a little bit before, before coming back to media. Um, and I think that this is a time for ideas. And I'm, as, as frustrating as this, everything that's happening now is, I'm also excited at the prospect of genuine, you know, change. And the I, time, hopefully, as, as, you know, Pete Buttigieg says, what does it look like when Trump is out of office? And mm-hmm. what kind of discussions can we have then? And that's the part that really excites me. And hopefully, you know, the next time I come on this show, rather than talking about impeachment of Trump and, and how awful it is, we can talk about 
like how do we move this country forward? How do we fix it? Yeah, we can do to fix things. Fix the damage. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be the big. It's going to be the next big task of our time, Navid. I think is going to be the process of repairing this damage to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I'm not talking about necessarily just going back to the way things were before Trump. I'm talking about taking that and and fixing all of those loopholes that Trump has exploited. Right. Totally. And I, I think that's the right way to look at it. And, you know, I, I hope that people realize as, again, as depressing as this moment is and as somber as it is, it's also the potential for real change that yeah. you're right. We don't want to go back to pre-Trump. We need to move post-Trump. We need to change this country. There's things that need to be addressed, big and small. And yep. hopefully now will be the time to have, hopefully in the near future will be the time to have those discussions, I should say. Is your uh, book still in development into a film, or is that uh, did that go it away? Is. Or is that uh, you know, it's, it's always, the movie part of this, always, it's always surprising to me how, how long <laughs> these things take, and then they just happen. So yeah, it's, it's still, uh, it was bought by Fox, not, not an option, they bought my life rights, and then Fox got bought by Disney, so we're waiting to hear what Disney's going to do with it. So. Yeah, yeah, well that can't but, be all bad. <laughs> No, but you would think that, you know, a, a book about Russia and spies would be at the forefront. But, you know, the, the Hollywood, the, it's, yeah. I'm more scared of Hollywood than I am the Russians. <laughs> as as well you should be, <laughs> sir. Uh, Navi, this is a, this is an extreme pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, I'm so Likewise. delighted to uh, finally catch up with you. And uh, this has just been great. I could talk with you for another two, three hours. Uh, <laughs> to, Anytime to... you want to have me back, please, please let me know. I'm happy to do it. We got all run back and watch the impeachment coverage. So thank you, my friend. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk to you again real soon. Hey, this is Ryan Knight, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, you're going to love my podcast, Amped Up with Proud Resistor, where we dive deep into progressive issues, Trump's crimes. And we have great guests like Rosie O'Donnell, Rob Reiner, and Malcolm Nance. You're such a name dropper. Oh, you know. So come on and join us at Amped Up with Proud Resistor on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network.